chapter number 2, Matthew chapter number 2, as you think about that song that you just heard, the Bible is an amazing book. It's God's Word, and the Bible says this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This isn't in your notes. I'm not reading the text yet. This is just free. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. To be inspired, the inspiration of God, means that it is God-breathed, God-spirited. If you go back to the book of Genesis and you see, there is a, somebody may, yeah, the, the room, there's a room right there if you don't mind. If you go back to the book of Genesis, what you find in the book of Genesis is that when God created this world, if we were going to make something, we would, we would build it with our hands. But God spoke this world into existence. That's what the Bible teaches. And so God spoke, God inspired this world. When you think about the Word of God, all Scripture is given by inspiration. God spoke, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word, capital W, was with God, and the Word was God. When Mary... And she didn't, the Bible doesn't record those words, that song, but I think the writer of that song did a great job. Imagine what was going on in Mary's heart. The Bible says she pondered all these things. How is this possible? Because we have an almighty God. If God can speak this world into existence, and God can speak his word into existence, then certainly that same God can bring his son from heaven to earth to redeem us from our sins. And that's what Mary's prayer and that's what that song represented, the breath of heaven. He came down to us and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now that was just free. I'm not going to charge you for that. The rest I'm going to charge you for, all right? But this morning we look at Matthew chapter number 2. The Bible says in verse number 1, if you'll follow along with me either in your Bible or if you need to follow along in the, on the paper there, the Bible says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, I mentioned last week, before we read on, you're not born a king. But yet the scriptures say that they asked, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And as we read on, the Bible says in verse 2, for we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, what's those next three words? He, he was what? 
he was troubled. And look at this, and all Jerusalem with him. Do you know that Christmas can be a very troubling time? For some people, it's a very disturbing time. And this morning, with God's help, the reason that Christmas is troubling for some is because Christmas exposes some things in our lives, some things about us. And this morning, we're going to look at the Bible and hear what the Word of God has to say and what Christmas exposes in our lives today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for that breath of heaven that came down. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. I pray that you bless the Word of God this morning, bless our time here on this Christmas Sunday service. Lord, I pray that your Word would fall on ears that are hearing and our hearts that would receive it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated this morning. Thank you for standing. It's interesting when you study the first Christmas, and that's what we read about in Matthew chapter number 2, upon the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible records that King Herod was troubled. This was the king of this area in the world. The Bible not only says Herod was troubled, but all Jerusalem was troubled. Now, what were they troubled about? Well, when they heard about the birth of a baby. The Bible records here that that Christmas was an amazing time, and it was amazing, but yet it troubled some. Jesus was in Christmas, and we understand this long before, candy canes and Rudolph and Jingle Bells. Why was the first Christmas in the Bible so troubling, especially for Herod? Herod, I think, as we look in the passage here, I think Herod's a lot more like you and I than we think. It's easy to point your finger at people that maybe didn't act the way they should, like Herod or Peter or others in the Bible. Sometimes I think we identify with this man by the name of Herod. And as we look in the passage this morning and some verses following this passage, I want us to see how Christmas exposes three secret areas in our lives that can cause some troubling. Notice, first of all, that Christmas exposes our insecure positioning. Sometimes in our lives, what we have is insecurities. And certainly we like in our lives, it's our human nature that in our flesh, we like to position ourselves. The Bible mentions in verse number one that Herod was the king. But notice that now the Bible records that this new king, the king of the Jews, came and Herod saw the coming of this one that was born king of the Jews. He saw that as a threat. If we're not careful in our lives, we can feel in some ways that Jesus can be a threat to our position. Because here's the simple truth this morning. We're just like Herod. We want to be the king of our life. We don't want anybody ruling over us. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. 
how to act, how to behave. We want to rule our own life. We want to be on the throne of our own life. We want to make the decisions of our life. We want to call the shots in our own lives. We want to determine the direction of our life. But can I tell you this morning, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, as you make that decision to trust in Him, what are you doing? Well, in reality, what you are doing when you trust Christ as your Savior is you're surrendering the throne of your life. You're no longer the one on the throne because now He is, because He's your Savior. Notice as we surrender the throne, the first area in our lives is that we should surrender the throne of authority. When a person gets saved, again, what are we doing? We are, there is a transition because we were the ones in charge. We were the ones calling the shot. Now he is. The Bible says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let the Lord have his way in your life. Paul was saying here in Philippians chapter 1 that I am no longer the authority in my life. I am no longer in charge. I am no longer calling the shots in my life. Listen to what he writes to those in Galatians chapter 2. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth, Know we, know we him no more. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Clearly there are many other places we can go in the word of God that just validate the fact that when we get saved, when we put our faith in Christ, He takes the throne of our lives. Life is no longer about us. Now our life is about Him. To die is gain. We're no longer the one calling the shots. John the Baptist said this, He must increase. I must decrease. You see, we have to first of all surrender the throne of authority, but that can trouble us because we like to be in charge. But there must be that surrender. The surrender of authority. Secondly, there needs to be the surrender of applause. Again, I know how I am, and chances are you're probably a lot like I am. The old flesh loves to be praised, and it loves to be worshipped. A lot of times I I want to recognize or I want to say something about somebody and I'm, I'm always afraid that, that if I say something, I might forget about somebody else. 
and there's this danger sometimes in our lives, just like it says in John 12, 43, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. But folks, when we trust God as our Savior, what are we doing? We're, yes, we are surrendering the throne of authority, but we're also surrendering the throne of applause. The Bible says, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. You know who deserves the glory today? God does. To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. He deserves our praise. Without him, certainly we know we can do nothing. And without him, we know that we are nothing. And we need to surrender the throne of authority. We need to surrender the throne of applause. But notice we also should surrender the throne of ambition. I mean, I think about uh, Herod here, how he was the king of a, of a country or a land, much like many other kings that have lived before him. And, and one thing about those that were in charge, a king, they would have a vision for their country, for what they would want to do when they were in charge. They would have some goals. They would have an agenda as they were ruling. They would have plans for their country. And what we find is, is that when we put our faith and our trust in Christ, that as we do that, there's now a change in leadership. Many times we use the word transition. You see, again, we were in charge. We were calling the shots. We were like a Herod, but when we get saved, we give up that throne of ambition. Now he is the one that has the new agenda for our lives, and he is the one that has a new plan for our lives. Uh, look, when we allow Jesus to take the throne of our lives, Jesus has a much better plan for your life than you do. See, the king is no longer us. It's no longer our agenda. It's no longer what we want. He's on the throne. God has a new vision for your life. Every year as a pastor, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, where there is no vision, the people perish. What's interesting, when you study that word vision, it literally is talking about the, a knowledge of the Word of God. So here's a great example. What happened in the 60s when they took prayer out of school? What happened when they took the Bible out of school? What happened when they removed it from the courthouses of our land? Where there is no Word of God, where there's no truth, the people perish. Every year I pray God, give me a, a fresh vision, a fresh direction from your word. If you notice many times, if not every time, what God does is God lays maybe a verse or a thought or a passage on my heart like he's done for this coming new year. I can't wait to share it with you on January the 12th. You're going to want to be here for that. It's going to be an exciting day because not only are we going to receive what God would have for us in this new year, but we're going to celebrate 70 years as a church. It's going to be a wonderful day. Our 2020 vision 
If you're like me, I guarantee you, your eyesight's probably not 20-20 anymore. But God's going to give us a new vision, a 2020 vision. As we celebrate 70 years as a church. But how does that happen? Because we understand that we're not here to do our thing. We're here to do what the king wants. See, he's on the throne. He has some new plans. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I know some people like things. They, they like to, I've, I've laughed and joked with some of our folks. You know, there's, there's generations that are ahead of me that they, people use the word hoard, hoarders they call them. But the truth is that generation ahead of me, they just understood that things in their day wasn't disposable. They'd hang on to things. You know, one man's junk is another man's treasure. But when you think of the Christian life, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new when you are in Christ. You see, when I think about this troubling of Herod and all of Jerusalem, Christmas really does trouble people. You know why? Because it destroys our position. And in destroying our position, it establishes God's position in our life, that he is the king and not Herod. So we think this morning, what does Christmas do? Well, it exposes our insecure positioning. But notice, secondly, Christmas exposes our invalid piety. Go back to Matthew chapter number 2. Look what the Bible says in verse number 7. The Bible says, Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now, as you read on in this chapter, you'd probably have figured it out by now that Herod was not interested in worshiping Jesus. He was not interested in worshiping the king. He had no desire, no intention of doing that. He put on what many call like a false pretense. He's actually talking to these wise men and he puts on this pretense before them. He had a kind of a persona, like many people do, that there was some spirituality there in his life. But as I think about Herod this morning, and I told you earlier that I think many of us are more like Herod than we think we are. Because notice letter A here, God sees through the exoteric Pharisee. They say, Pastor, what is exoteric? It's a fancy word for the exterior. If you know anything about Pharisees, they are people in the Bible who believe themselves to be better than others. And you study the word of God, the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, watch this, they were outwardly religious. They looked great when they came to church. 
They had the right suit on. They had the right dress. They talked the talk. They walked the walk. Everything looked perfect. We've had uh, couples retreats over the years, and if you've never been to one, you should plan to come this year. They're always a great time. But we've showed this little, I thought about showing it this morning, we've showed this little bitty video a couple times of this couple. <clears throat> they get up Sunday morning. I mean, everything happens at their house. The kids are eating the wrong food, and they're not, they, they're, not out of, they're not getting out of bed when they should, and the husband is trying to shave, and he shaves off half of the hair on his head, and the wife ends up with makeup all over the place, and they're arguing and fighting all the way to church. They get to church. The kids don't have their shoes. I mean, anything and everything that could happen happens before they get to church. But as soon as they get to church, and they get out of the car, and they're screaming and hollering at each other, the dad puts his Bible under his arm. And they walk into church, and they're high-fiving everybody. How's it going, brother? Great. Love Jesus. Isn't God so good? And we laugh about that, but the truth is, Many people, outwardly, they put on a good display. But God sees through that. On the outside, they appear like they had it all together. Look at Luke 18 there in your notes. The Pharisee stood, and he prayed thus with himself. Listen to what he says, his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You know what Jesus says to that attitude? Look at it. But all their works, they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their flackeries, enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men rabbi, rabbi. We love, our flesh loves it when people puff us up. This outward appearance, those Pharisees of Jesus' day they kept every point, or believe they did, of the Old Testament law, down to the very letter of it. They dared not to break one point of the law. On the outside, they appeared to be very religious. But when you study it, here's what I find. When Jesus came, and it's still the same today, Jesus sees through this acting to be spiritual. On the outside, people perceive that they look at us and they see he's a pastor or look at his, she's wearing a dress and they perceive that we're spiritual, that we're godly people. Matthew 23, verse 25, Jesus gives this warning. 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you made clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. You know what the Bible's saying there? God sees through the exterior and God sees all the way to the heart. You, you, I said it this morning, a couple of people, I don't know if they took it the way I meant, but according to the Bible, God formed man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed life into man and he became a living soul. So what you're looking at today is dirt wearing a suit. That's what you're looking at. There's nothing good about us. You can paint it all you want. You can dress it however you want. People say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. It does matter because man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. God's looking at your heart this morning. And I'm a firm believer because I see this in the word of God that God changes the heart, and what begins to happen is as the Holy Spirit of God begins to work, God works from the inside out. A lot of times people say, they talk about the way people dress and so on, and, and, and I'm not here to be the Holy Spirit. But I do believe that many times the way we dress, what we do to our bodies, the way we act is a reflection and I think it's important that we represent the Lord the way God would have us to do it because God sees the heart. Look at Matthew 23, 28. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Jeremiah said, I the Lord search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. See, God doesn't see like man does. I mentioned it earlier. God looketh on the heart. And it's important that we understand that God sees through the exterior. But notice, secondly, God sees through the empty promises. See, a lot of times, just like Herod, remember what Herod said Hey, listen, give me word where this king is because I want to come and worship him too. See, he was making an empty promise there. He never desired to worship Jesus. He, he was indicating, hey, I want to come and bow down to this new king. He was making a promise. You know what it was? It was an empty promise. You ever made a promise knowing that you either wouldn't or couldn't keep that promise? Reminds me of a husband just before he was about to pass into eternity. He said to his wife these words, When I die, I want you to take all my money and put it in the casket with me. He said, I want you to take my money. And he says, I want to take it into the afterlife with me. And so, as best he could, he got his wife to promise him with all her heart 
that when he died, she would put all his money in the casket with him. Well, the time came and he passed. He was laid out in the casket. His wife was there and people came by. She was sitting there next to the casket dressed in black. Her friend was sitting next to her. And when the ceremony ended, just before they closed the casket, she said to the people that worked there at the funeral home, wait a minute. She got up from her chair and she uh, she, she, she uh, grabbed this box. She walked over, she put the box in the casket. After she placed it in there, she saw them close the lid and they began to wheel it away. And her friend leaned over to her and she whispered to her, the wife of the deceased, a man, she said, girl, I know you were not foolish enough to put all the money that he has in that uh, casket with your husband and the wife answered no she said i'm a christian she said i'm not going to go back on my word i promised my husband that i would put all his money in there with him and the girlfriend just couldn't believe it she she had a pretty good idea how much he was worth she just couldn't believe that she did that and so the wife said to her, she said, you really mean that you put all the money inside that casket with him? And the wife said, I sure did. I wrote him a check, and if he can cash it, he can spend it. <laughs> now, some of you, I could tell you were ahead of me on that joke. She never listened. He said, promise me. With a... She never intended to put that money in there. A lot of times we do the same thing, just like Harriet. We make all kinds of promises, and we never intend to keep those promises. God sees through this invalid piety in our lives. Think about it, how many times maybe you've made a promise to God. Things going bad in your life, maybe God brings something into your life as a trial. And what do we do? We start to promise God, God, if you take this from me, I'll never miss church again. God, if you take this from me, I'll, I'll make sure that I give every time I go to the house of God. God, I, I, I promise I'll never drink again. I'll never cuss again or whatever it may be. God, I, I, I promise you this. I promise you that. We're just like Herod. But you know what I like about God that's different than us? God's never broken one of his promises to us. Every promise God has ever made has come true. God's never let us down. I love this verse, Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. That's our God. God says, I'm going to be true to my word. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, shall he not make it good? In other words, the Bible says the Lord has sworn, and he says, and I will not repent. The word repent means God's not going to change his mind. God's not an Indian giver. When God makes a promise, God's promise is good. And when we kneel at an altar, and when we talk to somebody else, and we say, hey, listen, would you pray with me about this? And we make a promise to God, then we ought to keep that promise that we make to God. But many times, what do we do? We try to find a way out. We look for a, watch this, a loophole. 
How can we go around this? Can I give you a couple verses that have been very convicting in my life over the years? Look at them. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Do you get what the verses are saying? If you're going to promise, look here, if you're going to promise God, you better make sure you keep your promise. Because God says it would be better for you to not promise me at all than for you to promise me and not keep your word. I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, Friday I had the privilege of standing here and I conducted a simple wedding ceremony. I said, Pastor, who was it? It was two Christians. She used to come to our church and she's come back. She met a man and she asked me about a month ago, she said, can I, can I come talk to you? We talked and so I set up a meeting and I, I sat down with the two of them and honestly the meeting wasn't about their wedding. Their meeting was about the Lord because I'm not going to marry people that are not Christians. So, Pastor, why not? Because the Bible says that we should not be unequally yoked together. And how can a marriage be blessed unless both the husband and wife are Christian? So I sat and talked to him. I listened to their testimony. She began to share with me how she trusted the Lord as her Savior when she was younger. And she did tell me that she hadn't been living for the Lord. And so I turned to him. His name was Bethel. Very interesting name. Very significant name. Bethel. I began to talk to him about the Lord. And right in the corner classroom back here about a month ago, Bethel bowed his head and prayed and trusted Christ as his Savior. I didn't tell him what to pray. After he prayed that prayer, I said to him, I said, now, Bethel, did you mean that prayer you prayed? And he said, yes, I did. I said, did you pray that prayer to me? And he said, no, I didn't. I said, who'd you pray that prayer to? He said, I prayed it to, to God. I said, and what did God say to you? That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I said, is that my promise? He goes, no. I go, who made that promise? He said, God did. I said, do you think God will ever take that away from you? He says, nope. I said, isn't that amazing? God will always keep his word. Every promise he's ever made. So here we were on Friday, and we were standing right here. He was standing here, she was standing here. All kinds of family was here. I didn't know hardly any of them. And I, I made a big deal to this couple that they were coming together in Christ that their home needed to be established on the word of God, that Christ needed to be the center of their marriage, that if they wanted their marriage to be blessed, that they needed to make sure that God was at the center of that marriage. 
And I said, marriage is an institution of God. And it is one we do not enter into lightly. I said, Pastor, were you trying to scare them? No. I was just trying to help them understand the magnitude of one of the institutions of God. See, people today throw out a word that oftentimes they don't realize the origin of it. But they think that you find it in the Bible. They, they use the word divorce. Some of you may have gone through that. Listen, if you have, we love you. God loves you. But divorce in the Bible is not divorce that you see in the world today. You need to understand what the Bible has to say. But the Bible does say that what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Do you know what, you know what the word asunder means? To divide. It's easy to quit. I said to Bethel, I said, there's going to be times that you're going to want to quit. You're going to want to walk away. But you have to remember, you're promising God. And you're promising her till death do us part. Do you get it this morning? God says, if you're going to promise, oh, Herod, hey, make sure you come tell me. Because I want to come. I'm here on Sunday, Pastor. I'm a good Christian. I was here on Easter. God sees through those empty promises. When we think of God on the throne of our lives, you know what happens? It exposes this form of godliness. This outward appearance. Some of us have gotten really good at playing church. Playing Christianity. And God gave us Christmas to expose our insecure positioning. He gave us Christmas to expose our invalid piety. But notice, Christmas thirdly exposes our inbred pride. Now go back to Matthew chapter number 2. Look what the Bible says in verse number 12. Let's, let's follow this along here. The Bible says, Being warned of God in a dream, that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt, and be thou, be thou there, until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord, uh, of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years of old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. So when you look at this passage here, you see in these verses that instead of acknowledging the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, Herod does everything, in, listen, in his power to destroy Jesus. He does everything he can to protect himself. Notice the reaction of his pride in verse number 16. The Bible says again that when he saw that he was mocked, he was exceeding wroth. And look what he does. I mean, look how horrible this man was. He killed, he murdered all the children in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years of age and under. You think to yourself, how is that possible? How can somebody be that deranged, that angry? But that's what we see is this senseless, inhumane thing that he does. Why did he do that? Because of pride. I'm not about to have another king knock me off the throne, take my place. And his reaction shows us that he was so angry that he, he kills all these innocent children. And you see that the result of his pride, look at verse number 19, the Bible says, but when Herod was dead. That's the result of pride. That's where pride will get you. There is only one king that will continue to live, and that king is not Herod. The Bible says Herod was dead. That king is not Herod. That king is not you. That king is not me. Everything we see in the Word of God helps us to understand there is only one king that should be ruling and reigning, and that king's name is Jesus. You see, it's not our money and our talent. It's not about us being on the throne. It's all about Jesus. And the Bible simply says, Herod was dead. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Christmas can be a troubling time. I mentioned it. Some of you kind of looked at me thinking, Pastor, I thought Christmas was a joyful time. It's meant to be. It really is. But for some, because of what Christmas exposes about secret things in our lives, oftentimes many of us are very similar to King Herod in this passage. Christmas should not be about us. It should be about him. If we're not careful, Christmas will trouble us. We'll come to church and say, well, it's just another Christmas service. Just another Christmas message about the birth of Jesus. Just another Christmas song. Christmas wasn't meant to trouble us. Look at John 10, 10. Jesus simply said it this way, I am come. Why did I come? That they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. 
Would you bow your heads with me this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed? And I want to thank you for listening. We'll be done in just a moment. The trouble with Christmas, Christmas isn't about us. It's about Jesus. I look at this passage this morning. You don't have to be like Herod. You don't have to reject Jesus the way Herod did. You could be like those wise men. You could receive the king. You could be like that man that I mentioned, Bethel. And he opened his heart and he prayed and trusted Christ as his Savior. Some of you, maybe as Christians over the years, you've been making a lot of promises that have been nothing more than empty promises. Maybe you've made a promise. You know, I've run into people many times who have literally said to me, Years ago, God was dealing with me about, and they would tell me whatever it was, and then they'll tell me this, I never did what God was asking me to do. And I, when I look at their eyes, I see the regret, because they did not keep their promise to God. Have you made a promise to the Lord that you haven't kept? And maybe today on this Christmas Sunday, maybe you would come and get alone with God at the altar this morning and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I haven't kept my promise. And I'm coming today because you have spoken to me. And it's evident that I need to get back to keeping my word with you. And if you've never trusted in the word of God, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And why don't you come today and receive the greatest gift that was ever given, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed? No one looking around, nobody moving. Let's just be still where we are for just a moment. But if you need to come this morning for whatever reason, Christmas is a great time to spend just a moment with the Lord. It's not about getting gifts. It's about thanking God for the gift, His Son, Jesus. Why don't you come this morning? Thank the Lord for what He's done for you. Thank the Lord for your salvation. Maybe this morning you're like that wife and you've made promises but you haven't kept them. Why don't you come? <clears throat> Why don't you come today and say, Lord, forgive me for not keeping that promise that I made to you. Let's, let's get past. It's between you and God. Let's get past this phony exterior, this outward appearance. Let's not be a Pharisee. Let's be real. This world needs to see real Christians. And by the way, whether you think it or not, God sees who we really are. He already knows. Now why don't you come today and say, Lord, help me to be a 
real Christian. A genuine Christian. Instead of that family that fights all the way to church, doesn't get along. But boy, when they're at church, they look good. How's your heart today? Before we're dismissed, I wonder, is there anybody here this morning? God has been speaking to your heart. You've never heard the message that Jesus loves you. Christ died for your sins. And that by faith you can repent of your sins and ask Jesus to be your Savior. If that's you this morning, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I wonder if you would just pray like Bethel did on couple weeks ago, if you would just pray a simple prayer to God, something like this, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm asking you today to forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and be my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Our heads are still bowed and our eyes are still closed. I wonder this morning. Did you pray that prayer? Did you pray and receive Christ as your Savior? Would you slip your hand up this morning? Pastor, I prayed and asked Jesus to be my Savior. Would you slip your hand up if you prayed that prayer this morning? Anyone at all? I see that prayer. Anyone else? Pastor, I didn't know when I came today, but God was speaking to my heart. And I put my faith in Him. I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone. I'm tired of playing some game where everybody thinks that I'm a Christian, I'm a good person. God sees me for who I am, and I prayed this morning that my outside would match my inside, or my inside would match my out. Anyone else this morning, raise your hand. Pastor, I prayed and asked Christ to be my Savior. Would you slip it up and put it right back down? Anyone else? Lord, we thank you for this one and maybe others that raised their hand to trust Christ as their Savior. This is what Christmas is all about. This is why you came. Lord, thank you so much for speaking to hearts. The message this morning may not have been the most joyful of Christmas messages, but it certainly dealt with me. It dealt with me in a hard way. God, you showed me, exposed things in my life. I need to, I need to be a more genuine, real Christian, not just be some exterior, some facade, but to be what you saved me to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.